we want to be equal. We want to be uh, uh, fraternal. We want to have solidarity. We might not achieve it, but I think it's a goal of, of this century. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Julieta Almeida Rodriguez, author of the historical novel Eleonora and Joseph, Passion, Tragedy, and Revolution in the Age of Enlightenment. You know, it's not only do we want the plot to be plausible, but we want the credibility of the historical fact. I think we want both as historical novelists. Julieta Almeida Rodriguez is a writer, professor, scholar, and interpreter. Eleonora and Joseph, Passion, Tragedy, and Revolution in the Age of Enlightenment is her debut novel. Born and raised in Portugal, Rodriguez earned a Ph.D. at Columbia University, where the renowned Margaret Mead was her dissertation sponsor. Rodriguez is the author of two collections of short fiction, The Rogue and Other Portuguese Stories and On the Way to Red Square. She also published a narrative work about Sintra, Portugal, titled Drawing Dusk, La Hora Crepuscular. She is a member of numerous literary and scholarly organizations, including being a member of the steering committee of the Historical Novel Society, New York City chapter. Rodriguez divides her time between Manhattan and Sintra, Portugal. I, I want to start with your, you have quite a record as a, a scholar and an academic, and I imagine that some people in your position might kind of see fiction as taboo. I wonder what brought you from a scholar over to historical fiction? Oh, uh, this is a, a great question, Colin. Uh, I think I wanted to explore the realm of the imagination, and my academic work did not allow me to do this fully. And this is basically what I was interested in after a certain point in my life. I thought that fiction would be the realm where I could basically look at historical material and go the way I wanted with it, keeping the historical facts as historical facts. And so this allowed me to express my emotions in a way uh, that my academic work never allowed me. So that kind of gave you... Um some some freedom to go beyond what you could discover in the sources? Yes, absolutely. I wanted to use the sources, and I think all historical fictionists do that. I wanted to use the sources in the way I wanted to use them. I didn't want to be constricted by those sources. And, you know, I give you a very clear example of this. Uh, both uh, two of my characters were brought up in Naples. They left Rome at a certain point in their lives, and both families, when they were adolescents, moved to Naples. 
I do not have any historical record that shows that they have met. But since at the time of the Marquis de Pombal, which was the Cardinal Richelieu of Portugal, since something like 300 families were forced to leave Rome at a certain point in time, these families moved to Naples, all you know, in the space of, of two or three months. So it is impossible that these families and these uh, adolescents have not met. But I don't have the historical record that shows that they have met. And I wanted these two historical figures because they were both Portuguese and they developed in a very different way. Uh, Eleonora becomes more and more of a revolutionary. Uh, uh, Joseph Correa de Serra, as time goes on, becomes more and more conservative. And I wanted to show the process by which, through their actions and their thinking, one became a revolutionary and the other more and more conservative. And and so my way to do this was to explore their lives at certain points in time using an historical record, but without having the certitude that they had met. But I knew that they moved to Naples at the same time. And so this is the realm of the imagination. You have the freedom to go with the material where you want. And I wanted that. I, at one point in my life, that was much more rewarding for me than just reading historical facts. And, you know, there are historians that go this way. This is not the historical fictionists that go this way. Uh, uh, for instance, in that book, uh, Citizens, uh, Sham, um, I do not recall his name exactly now. This is a professor at Columbia University, but he uses uh, facts in uh, in history in a broad manner in the way I am describing he goes with them where where he wants because you know one thing is just saying you know so and so the marquis de de, de Lafayette for instance were was born in a certain day okay we have the historical fact of the day in which he was born but what do you do with that fact you construct a life you map um the steps of this life. And this is what I wanted uh, to do. And I wanted that freedom and historical fiction allowed me that. And so I'm very grateful uh, to have used the discipline um, to have go, uh, to have gone through this the way I wanted. Yeah, it, it really is wonderful the way, way you're able to use all that research and, and, and make a story out of it, uh, like you said. I, I want to ask you more about Eleonora, um, and and specifically as it relates to your dissertation um, titled "Continuity and Change in Urban Portuguese Women's Roles," which uh, did, was there like um, a thread there that connects your dissertation to why you chose this you know revolutionary woman as one of the main characters in your novel? Oh, absolutely. Another great question, Colin. Absolutely. You see, I have always been interested in what revolutions do, particularly to, to women. And it's very interesting that you dig my, my dissertation, because, in fact, in 1974, I was in the United States and came back to Portugal because we ended 50 years of dictatorship. And I wanted to see the new society, and I wanted to see the role that both men and women plays in in the new in the new era, 
and I was particularly interested in women. And I did, uh, you know, my dissertation was interesting in the sense that I compared women that were housewives, women that were employed, and women that were employed and at the same time were members of workers' groups. And these were the ones that were at the forefront of innovation. And so since my dissertation, I have been very interested in what women do in revolutionary times. And suddenly I find Eleonora Fonseca Pimentel, a Portuguese uh, in Naples, and the Portuguese in Naples that is brought to the, to the scaffold. And so suddenly I'm very interested in mapping this life. And I'm very interested in figure, figuring out what, what were the steps in her life that led her to become a revolutionary. And she is one of the great revolutionaries of the, of the 18th century. She went to the scaffold in 1799. And by studying her life, I understood what happened. And that was fascinating to me. Well, you, you say she went to the scaffold in 1799, and that's kind of where your novel starts. And I want to ask you more about that, because she kind of begs the court to be beheaded. And they they said, we only grant our own nobles the dignity of being beheaded, which sounds contradictory. Can you talk more about that? Uh, yes, we see this was a big uh, debate uh, in, in the 18th century. And the, uh, Guillotin, which was a French, I think he was a medical doctor, um, he was at the forefront of this uh, debate. And he said, uh, we should use the guillotine for everybody and not only the members of the nobility. And so there was this big discussion around around this. And he said, as a medical doctor, this is a much more a painless way uh, to die. Um, But the guillotine was only applied to the nobility. You know, a commoner, a criminal, was hanged. And so by the court of Naples telling Eleonora when she asks to be beheaded, when they say, no, 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 we are going to treat you like a criminal, we might decide to hang you, they are basically humiliating her. And the noble title that she had had been granted to her father, and they say, "Well, we have stripped you know we have stripped you of your noble title, and therefore we can do with you whatever you want." So this was the most, uh, the utmost humility that you could that you could do in a court case, and they did it uh, to her. And you know, as far as the historical record, as far as all the evidence goes, this is exactly what happened. And can tell can you tell us more about the Neapolitan Republic of 1799 and, and what these revolutionaries were trying to accomplish? Yeah, this was a very interesting group of intellectuals uh, in Naples who were paying a lot of attention from the very beginning to what was happening in the French Revolution that, as you know, started in 1790 uh, in 1789. Jefferson was in Paris at that time as ambassador. And so actually, uh, Jefferson saw the taking of the Bastille. And a lot of people throughout Europe were watching very carefully what was going on. 
and uh, for instance the royal houses of the, the european the european monarchies were extremely worried because basically they knew that they wanted what the french wanted to do what the french uh, wanted to do was to end the ancien regime and have a system in which the king was not the major uh, person deciding what was happening uh, to everybody and so all these ideals of the French Revolution were being watched very closely in Naples, and people were reading the Monitore, uh, that were uh, the newspapers that were being created in many of the towns and cities uh, in France. And Naples was very interested in all this this process because Naples at that time was a city that rivals some you know a city like like uh, like uh, Vienna in Austria. And so they were very interested in what was going on in what is Austria now. It, uh, it wasn't before, obviously. And so the, this group of intellectuals in Naples were following very closely what was going on. And at one point, they decided, we want the same thing here. And how can we bring these about? And they could not do uh, these by themselves because they were a group of 200 or 300 people. And... Uh, Basically, what what happened was that the king and the queen, uh, uh, Ferdinando and Carolina, were very worried worried with what was going on. They knew that was revolution uh, 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 brewing, and they decided at one point to leave the kingdom the kingdom of Naples, the city of Naples, and go down to Palermo. And this gave the French the opportunity to come in because. The, the French troops were advancing to the south. As you know, uh, after the revolution, the French Revolution started, basically what the French wanted was to conquer all of, all of Europe. And they were coming down and they were establishing what they called sister republics throughout the south of, of Europe. And particularly, they arrived in the certain areas of Italy and the descent upon uh, the kingdom of Naples. And so basically these intellectuals knew that that this was going on and they met them at uh, Fort Sant'Elmo as the French troops are uh, arriving. The king has left a few weeks earlier with his family and entourage. They are in, in Palermo and they basically greeted the French into, into Naples. And there was a carnage, and a lot of people uh, died because the Lazzaroni, uh, the most popular of the, of, of the people in Naples, adored the king and queen. And they did not want a republic. They thought this was a foreign invasion. And they were not interested in having the king and queen uh, gone because, you know, uh, life was what it was, and they, they believed in, in the monarchy, and the Ferdinando was very ignorant, but very popular. Um, and so they, they, from the very beginning, there was a big clash between what later become, becomes the provisional Republican government and the majority of the people. So the Republic lasted for for uh, five months, and uh, uh, more, more or less, and then what happens is that the British come 
with Nelson. Nelson has a very important role to play here, and they basically defeated uh, the, the the republic. And it was uh, Nelson who ultimately brought the king back from Naples, uh, from uh, Palermo back into Naples. So it's a very uh, complex history, but this was a fight for the Mediterranean as well. Um, basically, um, the British wanted control of the Mediterranean, and with the defeat of the Kingdom of Naples, uh, they got it. Yeah, that is that is very complicated, um, and I can't imagine... Um, you know, thinking about Eleonora and what she was was fighting for at that time. Let's talk about um, Thomas Jefferson, that who, who you mentioned. Um, you know, on the other side of the world, and you know, he plays a large role in in your novel. I'm curious, after doing your research of Jefferson, what were your impressions impressions of him, and how did you decide to portray him in your novel? Uh, well, he's a, he's a fascinating personality, a very complex one and a very ambiguous one. Uh, because writing, uh, after writing the, the, the Declaration of Independence, which is you know a masterpiece of ideology, we are all created equal. Uh, we see what he did with his life, and we see that he had slaves, and we see that he had a relationship and fathered several children with, with Sally Hemings, and I think this is what the historical record uh, shows. So he is a fascinating man, full of ambiguity and, con and contradiction. And I think this is here that he becomes what makes these two characters, Jefferson and the Portuguese uh, Abbe Correia de Serra, this is what makes them such good friends. They see the complexity of each other's characters, and they enjoy that 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 uh, that uh, complexity. And in my novel, what I do, because the letters have been published, uh, in the novel, what I do is I read the letters very carefully, and I show how they share these secrets and these ways of being, and how they become such intimate friends. It's, you know, uh, some people describe them as the odd couple. And indeed, it seems to me an odd, an odd couple. But basically, they were very interested on one hand in diplomacy and on the other hand in botany. And uh, maybe botany is even more important than diplomacy. Uh, because as you know, um, Thomas Jefferson, one of the projects that he uh, loved most in his life was building the University of Virginia, which is part of the, the stone uh, where his tomb is. Uh, he craved it him, himself, and you know he wanted very much to create the University of Virginia, which is uh, he considers one of the um, major accomplishments of his life. And as Kuraya, let's call him Kuraya. Uh, to simplify, which is uh, Joseph Correa de Serra, as he's already in the United States, Jefferson is very interested that he becomes a professor of botany. And as moving around was so, so difficult in the early 19th century, every time uh, Joseph Correa goes and visits Monticello, he stays for long periods of time. He stays 
for weeks at a time. And um, he still today has a room um, in Monticello that bears his name. It's all, you know, in the Monticello website, which is a wonderful website. And so these these uh, two men uh, become very good friends, become basically intimate friends, and the correspondence shows that. And ultimately, I think they are such good friends because they are so similar in, in character. They are able to disguise what they don't want the other to know in their in their in their own life, and they do that uh, very masterly. So this was a lot of fun uh, to figure out. Well, uh, we've talked a lot now about the history and and about some of the characters here in your novel, but I, I want to talk a little bit more about you. Um, I, as I'm speaking to you now, you're in Portugal, I'm in the U.S. Uh, you were born in Portugal, and yet it, it, you say that you write in English. Why Why do you do that? <laughs> this is a complex answer. Um, I went to the United States, to Columbia University, where I did my degree. Then I came back to Portugal and started teaching at the university. And then I married an American that I met in Portugal, who was a diplomat stationed here. And we went uh, to the United States and stayed there before we went to the so-called then Soviet Union. And for a while, I was just observing the world. I wasn't, I wasn't writing, as, and you know, we were in several countries, and I basically was observing the world. And then I like basically the reason why I started writing in English was first, this was the language that I spoke at home. Um, secondly, we were back in the in the United States between posts, so in every other post we were back in the United States. And I like the, the Anglo-Saxon way of of thinking. Um, it's much more straightforward, uh, I think. And it's much more truthful, I think I can say. And since I was in the United States and think this and since these ideas were in my mind, I thought the best way to to go about this is is, is writing English. Now I am debating, after all these years, I'm debating if I should write my next novel in in Portuguese, because I am here now, and with the difficulties of the pandemic and going back and forth, I might decide to write in my next book in Portuguese. But I haven't decided yet, exactly for this reason. I find <laughs> European thinking very circular, if I can say that. And I like the Anglo-Saxon way of thinking that I find much more straightforward. I think it's easier to say what you want to say in English than it is in my native language, let's put it that way. Well, it's an, it's an interesting um, situation as a writer, and it's something I don't think about, um, you know, I suppose any bilingual author kind of has has to decide what language do they want to convey their story in uh-huh well you you talked you know a little bit about your life there and um i'm curious about how that's influenced your writing and and you do mention that somewhere um you know in your bio that 
you you've lived through some very unique world events. Um, so talk about some of those events and, and how those have influenced you. Um, well, I was in Moscow when Chernobyl uh, happened. I was in Washington on 9-11. This had a big impact on me because I, <laughs> not only on me, but all, uh, uh, all the people that were around me were going through the same circumstances. I was in Zagreb when the civil war started. Uh, and so we with all those people around me. And I think this shakes you in a way that you start looking at life um, in a more serious manner. And I think part of the interest in my writing is the recording of events that I think are significant for the world. The fact that Eleonora was brought to the scaffold, I think it's significant. The fact that there was a revolution in Portugal in 1974, it's uh, significant. So it's the perspective that those events give uh, to you that I find very interesting. And you know, I, I will not go into detail about my next book, but there was an attempt assassination on the king of Portugal in uh, in the 18th century uh, during the time of the prime minister Marquis de, de Pombal. And this is something that has been de debated since then until now. Who tried to kill the king? And um, who were these people who attempted on, on his life? And basically what happened? And there is no, the record here is not clear cut except that the Marquis de Pombal sent all of those nobles to the scaffold because he wanted, uh, he basically wanted to rule Portugal and without those members of the nobility was much easier. So I always find myself finding these moments in history that are very tragic. And I say, oh, what can I do with this information? This is, uh, I am fascinated by the events themselves. These are tragic events. What can I do with them? Somehow, that chaos interests me. You see, the complexity of the chaos interests me. Well, you mentioned the connection that these past events have with us today. Can can you elaborate a little bit more about, you know, specifically what you write with the Republic of Letters and um, the revolutions there, the Enlightenment in Europe, and how those events relate to what we're going through today? Well, it's fascinating that we live in in a world uh, in which uh, uh, liberty, fraternity, and solidarity are are I think still major major concepts. I think you know we live in a society in which we want to be equal, we want to be uh, uh, fraternal, we want to have solidarity. We might not achieve it, but I think it's a goal of of this century that uh, this is a very complex issue, but I think we are all interested in pursuing those thoughts. It's not that we want to go back to the ancien regime in which we have someone dictating what we should do and how we should do this. And this is what the kings did uh, in France. And this is what monarchies did all over Europe uh, until the ancien regime uh, died with the French Revolution. We don't want to go back to these uh, to these times. We do believe that we are all citizens of the world, and we are all citizens of either a country or a space like the European Union, and we have rights. 
And I think this has been a progression throughout history uh, uh, that has shown us where where we can go. Uh, we can talk f- uh, freely now. Uh, we couldn't talk freely before the Ancien Regime. Um, but I think this is a major accomplishment uh, for the world and, and for all of us. And so I, lo- I, I love that. I love those ideals that the French Revolution um, uh, enlarged throughout Europe. And let me mention something. Those ideals were very much uh, shaped by uh, what was happening in America uh, previously with America becoming independent. Uh, and so it's, it's, we are in several continents and we are in previous centuries and the world is, inter- is interconnected. Uh, we have, for instance, the, the figure that is a major figure of the of the American Revolution, the Marquis de Lafayette. When he's young, he wants to go and help and help um, fight for the independence uh, of the United States, for the independence of the colonies. And he does go, and he goes on, on his own. And when he goes a second time, already the king is uh, paying for his expedition. And he stays there for several months. And uh, uh, Jefferson acknowledges the immense importance that the Marquis de Lafayette had uh, in helping the colonies become uh, independent. And it's it's a very interesting detail that um, I wonder if you are aware of this or if your readers are aware of this. Later on, when they are both uh, old, uh, they are senior citizens and uh, the Marquis de Lafayette goes back to the United States and meets Jefferson in Monticello. Can you imagine what that meeting might have been? You know, he's there for two or three days. And can you imagine them discussing how Jefferson met Lafayette in Paris, how Lafayette goes twice to the United States helping the colonies fight for their independence, and these two men meet in their old age to discuss the events of the past and the successes that they basically had. And I I always think of this as an extraordinary meeting of these two old men. Yeah, definitely. I I can only imagine. Well, it's, it's, um, you know, I I love to hear you talk about these things from your perspective, just uh, having the experience that you have. I, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and certainly a lot of the the issues of equality and um, racism and opportunity have been illuminated here in the, the past year. And then, of course, with the, the the pandemic, just adding to all that. So it's, it's, it is really interesting to look at it throughout time and, and, you know, see how we're slowly moving and still struggling to to meet those uh, ideals, you know, set out by Jefferson and, and by those revolutionaries. Yes, we are. Yes, you said it very well. We are go. We are trying to go towards them, and we are struggling at the same time. And this is a, has been a constant struggle throughout history, and it is a fascinating one uh, because we go. It's like we go three steps forward and then two steps backward, and then we try again. We collectively, you know, uh, I mean, and it's a fascinating movement, and we never know where we end. So. Those periods of times in which there is, there is chaos, I'm, I somehow feel very interested in them. 
And, you know, we just went through this uh, horrible uh, pandemic. And I left New York. I was I was there alone. And I left New York. My son was here in Portugal, and uh, he wanted me to come back. Uh, and uh, basically came, came back in, within uh, 48 hours of the state of calamity being declared in New York, because I basically was afraid of dying alone in New York. I ultimately, one always dies alone, I guess. But I was, I felt important territory. Um, so it's like this movement towards a better society uh, is full of stepping stones and it's full of struggles. And um, we have all gone collectively through a very difficult year and a half. And let's hope um, the future will be a little bit brighter. And, you know, now I'm interested in this polemic about the virus. Was this created in, in the laboratory? Uh, was those, were those animals in that market, in the, that Chinese town responsible? We still don't know. We still do not know where we are going. I will never write about this. Uh, but um, this is just to give you an example. And how there is so much chaos. And certain moments in history, for me, um, are interesting in a way that my mind goes there and it doesn't let go until I finish. I need to understand them. And, and this transforms me as well. I see the world in a different light after I finish either the research or the book. I see the world in a different in a different way, and somehow I organize the chaos in my mind. And I think this is this is an important issue as well. How I feel that by studying the chaos, I organize thoughts in my mind in a way that I comprehend them much better than than before, and I like that. Well, it's it's. It... It's nice to look back with hindsight um, and have the advantage of, of pr the perspective of time. And, and certainly, you know, what we've been through recently, it will be interesting to see how historians view it and what they're, how they're able to create an understanding um, through that, that hindsight. Yes, absolutely. Well, we've, we've kind of covered over a lot of history here, and certainly your, your novel does... Um, have you ever made any mistakes in your historical inter interpretation or, or perhaps you've had to revisit some of your research to, to reevaluate how you've um, portrayed history? Oh, this is another great, uh, great question, Colin. And uh, uh, I, I am uh, very grateful that you asked this because recently I have had, sometimes it's one word that you want to change in your work. It's not a concept, it's one word. And this ha has happened to me actually recently because I was reading, I was rereading my novel after almost one year of publication. And as much as I described uh, Jefferson as a very complex personality, Joseph Correa is also a very complex uh, per uh, personality. And I was looking at some primary sources about his life now that I am here back in, in Portugal. And for instance, I was looking at the confession that he makes uh, to the Inquisition about his sexual practices. 
And so the Inquisition records, as uh, as you know, were very well documented in Iberia, in Portugal, and Spain. And I decided, you know, I had the document in my in my computer, but I decided to go to the the library here in Lisbon where those records are. And I start looking uh, through them, and it's a very complex process. By the way, they are or, organized because basically. I want not only uh, to look at the confession, which I have, as I say, in my computer, but I wanted to know if there was any additional information about his life that could shed some light on on that on that confession. The confession is only one page; it's signed. It's the signature is 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 very clear. I read it again, and I don't find anything else. But in my book. When I finished the book, I wrote that he had made uh, that confession to the Inquisition, that there were interrogations by the Inquisition judges, and that there was a, a trial. And curiously enough, I don't find evidence that there is a trial, but I don't find evidence in those records I looked at that there is no trial. And so sometimes it's just a question of one word. And what I decided to do was to change, was to take away the word uh, trial. I I say that he makes his confessions to the to the Inquisition, in the light of the interrogations that he is subjected to, and I don't use the word uh, trial. And um, and so I changed this in the book because my book is print on demand, so I don't have to wait for a second edition. I just changed that, and I look very very carefully uh, of the records that I have of uh, Joseph Correa de Serra's life. And there are major books. I will not mention the names of them because these were books written in Portuguese. But there are major books about the life of Correa de Serra. Not even one mentions this confession to 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 the Inquisition. <laughs> so, I, you know, I am kind of in awe. Oh, here is another life in chaos that I want to understand better. And, and so this is why I look at the records. This is why I say now that the confession takes place inside interrogations, but I don't call it a trial. And I think this is for accuracy. Of you know, I think we historical novelists need to be very careful with what we do with with facts, and sometimes changing a word I think makes makes a difference. And I will not go in, into the history of how I originally found the confession because I I, I might bore you, but uh, but it's very interesting too. Yeah, definitely, and it's it really is amazing the importance of of one word, and I I've certainly been there as an author where. I've discovered either a word that could be misinterpreted or or just making a, a mistake of fact um, and, you know, felt my heart sink, especially if it's already in print. You know, what do you do then? Um, exactly. So, you yeah, know, I, I applaud you for for making that change and, and getting it right, because, you know, that's going to be proliferated um, as more and more people get a hand, you know, read your book. Yes, yes. Uh, so it's fascinating. How do we go about this and how basically how careful we have to be for, for credibility? You know, it's not only do we want the plot to be plausible, but we want the credibility of the historical fact. 
I think we want both as historical novelists, don't you think? Yes, I, I totally agree. It's a very challenging mixture to 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 balance, you know, to get just right between making sure you have that compelling, engaging story that people want to read, while also may you know staying true to the historical record. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I find that fascinating, uh, but I still do not want to be an historian because you know I could have taken another degree and become an historian, and I didn't want to do that because I wanted to go this way in which I felt that my imagination could uh, just run wild. And in the next book that I'm planning to write, I have that same concept too. You know, I wanted to mention the author that I could, whose name I couldn't recall a little while ago in this fantastic book of history called Citizens. It's Simon Shema. And you know he's a he's a professor at at Columbia University, and he is an historian that is amazing because this book reads like historical fiction. He's you know truthful to the facts, but the book reads like historical fiction. It's a fascinating book. It's called Citizens: A Chronicle of the French Revolution, and he's describing character. For instance, when he goes into people like uh, like uh, the Marquis de Lafayette, he is describing this you know these ideals of this man and what he wants to do with his life and why he goes to uh, to the colonies uh, that became later the United States. He travels to America, uh, goes twice. And uh, the way he describes character, it's like an historical fictionist, and I love that. Interesting. Well, I'll look for that, but not, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, not before we have uh, people go to your book, Eleonora and Joseph, Passion, Tragedy, and Revolution in the Age of Enlightenment. Julieta, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much, Colin. It was my pleasure. I've been honored. Thank you very much. Sorry that that yeah. Sometimes there are technical issues and just got to work through them. Well, anyways, how yeah. how's it going? Otherwise, <laughs> it's going okay. You know, it's really amazing how this technology works or doesn't work, and we try to figure it out. And it is exactly what, what you are saying. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work. But otherwise, I'm fine. <laughs>